Well, please turn with me for the final time in this communion season to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and to verses 6 to 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 to 13. It's on page 1188 in the church Bible. Paul's love for the Thessalonians has been questioned and it has been defended. And then we saw this morning how he expressed his love in the sacrifice, the personal costly sacrifice that it was for him to send Timothy to Thessalonica in his place to establish and to encourage and to exhort the new Christians in that city. And then in this last section of the passage, Paul speaks about Timothy's return and his report. And his report is good news. In fact, Paul uses a play on the words of the original language uh, when he says that Timothy has brought good news, because that, that phrase, he has brought good news, is the verb that's used for the preaching of the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy has come back from Thessalonica carrying with him a Thessalonian gospel. And the church is doing well spiritually. They are full of faith and love, Paul says. In other words, they're believing the right things and they are doing the right things. The Thessalonians haven't been swayed by the slander of the Jews into thinking badly of Paul and Silas and Timothy. In fact, quite the opposite. They remember them fondly and they long to see them again. Paul's mind is set at rest. It has been an unspeakably great comfort to him to know that the Thessalonians are standing firm in their faith and in their love and that they still love Paul and Silas and Timothy. And now, in these verses, he describes his reaction to this good news. Let's read these verses then together, first of all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, reading from verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts 
blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul is describing his reaction to this good news, and he tells the Thessalonians two things, how he felt and what he did as a result of how he felt. So first of all, in verses 7 to 9, we see how Paul felt. Paul says three things here about how this news made him feel, this news that the Thessalonians are indeed standing firm and doing well spiritually. First of all, in verse 7, he was comforted. In all our distress, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul tells them that he has been going through the mill, that he has been experiencing distress and affliction. Both of those words mean more or less the same thing. And usually when Paul uses these words, he's describing physical distress and affliction, particularly the kind of trouble caused by the persecution of the enemies of the gospel. And now, we don't know what precisely in Paul's life this uh, distress and affliction relates to, but we do know that these things were almost everyday occurrences for the Apostle Paul. So he's been going through physical distress and affliction, persecution because of the enemies of the gospel. But that's not his point. His point is this, in all his distress and affliction, what is the thing that lifts his spirits? What is the silver lining that compensates for all that distress? It's this, this good news, that the faith and love of the Thessalonians is standing strong worth asking yourself, isn't it, is that the kind of thing that would cheer you up if you were going through distress and affliction? Would you forget about your own pain and your own sorrow? Would you be overjoyed just because you heard that some believers that you'd been involved with for a few weeks were doing well spiritually? I suspect that the only thing that would cheer me up would be an end to the pain an end to the affliction. I, I suspect that that might be the thing that my mind would be focused on. But Paul clearly is not nearly so self-absorbed as me. For Paul, hearing that these Christians are doing well, that is the best news that anyone could possibly have told him. He's comforted. Then he tells us in verse 8 that he has been revitalized for now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. And we looked a little bit at that verse at the table this morning. The news that their faith is strong has given Paul a whole new lease of life, new energy and new zeal. Before this, it felt as though his life was just ebbing away. But now it's as if he has come to life again because his life is bound up inextricably with their lives. 
Paul is not some ivory tower theologian who hides himself away in the study, surrounded by his books, and he couldn't care less about what's going on in people's lives. No, far, far from it. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He's comforted. He's revitalized. And then in verse 9, he says that he is overjoyed. Uh, He tells us that he is overjoyed. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? You can imagine him grinning from ear to ear as he tells anyone who asks, anyone who will listen, they're standing firm. Wait till you hear. They're standing firm. His joy is just overflowing. It's, it's pouring out of, of, of every pore of his body. It's as if he's saying, I just can't put into words how happy we are to hear this good news about the Thessalonians. And again, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? It's worth asking ourselves if the spiritual health of other believers makes us happy like this. Could we say that we are overjoyed when we hear of Christians who are doing well? It's, it's, it's worth thinking about what kinds of things do flood our souls with joy. Maybe it's a new book that we're really enjoying by our favorite author. We've been looking forward to reading it. Or, or a favorite TV program, or a really nice meal, or the prospect of a holiday. There's nothing wrong at all with delighting in these things and taking joy in these things. There's something wrong if we didn't take joy in these things. God has given us all these things to be richly enjoyed. But what about when we hear of Christians thriving and doing well spiritually? Does that above all, lift your spirits and put a spring in your step. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? So how did he feel? He was comforted, he was revitalized, and he was overjoyed. But let's ask the question that we've been asking all the way through this passage. Why did Paul feel the way that he felt? Why did he, as a pastor, feel such joy in his congregation's spiritual prosperity? And he felt like this, as we know by now, because this is how the chief shepherd, the great pastor of the flock, feels about his people when we stand firm in our faith. Paul's attitude, Paul's feelings here, Paul's emotions, they're just a pale reflection of the Lord's attitude to us, his sheep. We grieve the Lord when we sin. He is distressed by our failures. Make no mistake about it. But conversely, We bring him joy and we bring him delight when we stand firm. That is a great incentive, isn't it, to holiness and to obedience. 
because it makes our Lord happy. Zephaniah 3.17 He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how the Lord feels about His people. And that's why Paul imitates that joy and that delight in the people of God. The Lord delights in the holiness of His bride. Psalm 45 verse 11, The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. Yuski was telling us this morning about the Song of Songs uh, and how it is a, a glorious, beautiful, thrilling description of romantic love between a man and a woman. But how it then, secondarily, it is a picture of the Lord's love for his people because that's what romantic love is. That's why God has invented it. That's why marriage exists. It's to give us a picture of the relationship, uh, that uh, union between Christ and his people. Uh, and so the Song of Songs, pick any verse, anywhere you want to read in that, and you will see the transports of joy and delight that the Lord feels in his people. It's a great incentive to holiness, isn't it? to think about the Lord's delight in His people. We want to please people that we love, don't we? We want to please people that we respect and admire. We want to gladden their hearts. We're commanded to do this for our elders in the church. Uh, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, God says, I want you to bring joy to the hearts of your overseers well then how much more should we seek to do it for the Lord Jesus Christ? Your Savior rejoices in your faith and in your love and in your obedience and in your worship. Of course He does because He died. He lived and died. He came to earth to make all of those things possible in the first place. Remember that as you go out into the world this week and all the different interactions and activities that you're involved in. Think to yourself, when I stand firm in my faith, when I obey the Lord, when I honor my Lord, I am bringing joy and gladness to the heart of my Savior. Take Paul's words here, Paul's feelings, and multiply them by infinity. That's how the Son of God feels when I turn away from sin and when I do what is right. What Paul felt. And then, secondly, in verses 10 to 13, we see what Paul did. He's told the Thessalonians uh, what he felt. Now he tells them what he did. And the answer in a word is that he prayed. He prayed. He's not going to be complacent about these Christians. Timothy has brought back this good report, and Paul is filled with thanksgiving, but he's not just going to, to forget about them now. He knows that they're still vulnerable. They're still facing great pressures and temptations. He's thankful they're standing firm, but he's not going to relax. He's not going to take their spiritual health for granted. 
and so he prays. And just notice how he prays in verse 10. Excuse me. He says that he is praying night and day. Night and day. Sometimes he goes without sleep deliberately in order to pray for these Christians. Other times he wakes up in the night and his thoughts turn to these believers in Thessalonica. And so he would get out of bed and he would pray for them night and day. And he says that he's praying for them most earnestly night and day. And that word that's translated there, most earnestly, uh, is a very unusual word. Uh, it, it means, it's hard to translate, it means quite beyond measure. Uh, it's the word that's used by Paul in Ephesians 3 verse 20, uh, where he speaks of God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's the word that he uses to describe his prayers for these Thessalonians. Night and day, most earnestly. All the time, with extreme intensity. His love for these believers is so great that he gives himself to praying for them without ceasing. He's praying that he'll see them again face to face, that he'll be able to supply what is lacking in their faith. But then, having told them that he's praying for them, in verses 11 to 13, Paul then actually does pray for them. And we have this record of this prayer right in the middle of the letter, verses 11 to 13. And he's praying three things. In verse 11, he prays that he will be able to go to Thessalonica. He's still fixated on getting to Thessalonica. He still hasn't given up. This man has a one-track mind, doesn't he? How can these Jewish slanderers in Thessalonica accuse Paul of not caring about the Thessalonians? They're all he ever seems to think about, night and day. All he ever thinks about is, how can I get back to Thessalonica? And as far as we know, it wasn't fulfilled, this desire of Paul's to return to Thessalonica, it wasn't fulfilled for another five years when Paul visited Macedonia at the end of his third missionary journey. And yet he's praying earnestly that it will happen. So he's praying to get back to Thessalonica. Then in verse 12, the second thing that he prays is for increasing love for one another. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. He's praying for ever-increasing, overflowing love, because that is something that is absolutely vital in any church, especially in a church uh, like the Thessalonian church, where you've got many different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different points of view, different ideas about all kinds of things. In a church like that especially, how vital it is to pray earnestly, night and day, that God would cause their love to increase 
and overflow. It's interesting, here in verse 11, in verse 12, I'm sorry, he prays that God would make their love increase for one another. And then in chapter 4, verse 9, he's going to exhort the Thessalonians that they should increase their love for one another. And that's, that's a very interesting and telling balance, isn't it? He's praying that God would do it, and he's commanding the Thessalonians to do it. Now, is that a contradiction? Does Paul not know what he's talking about? What's going on here? Well, it's both together, isn't it? This is how holiness works, not just loving one another, every aspect of holiness. God works, and we work as well. We strive with all our energy to obey the Lord, but we're only able to obey the Lord because He gives us the strength and He gives us the grace. And so we need to pray hard and we need to work hard depending on Him. It's both together, you see. Uh, and some Christians, they're all pray and no work. And other Christians are all work and no pray. And it's got to be both together. Uh, and we all need to think about which extreme we tend towards. Uh, do I just wait and expect God to do it all for me and leave it all to Him? Or do I just do it all myself and I'm not really praying enough? Paul prays that their love would abound, and he commands them to abound in their love for one another. And just notice, too, the example that Paul uses of how they should love one another. He's, he's praying that their love will increase and abound for one another and for everyone. And what's the standard? What's the, what's the template for that love? As we do for you as we do for you. I wonder, could you pray that prayer? Lord, I am praying that the members of Trinity will love one another with increasing, overflowing love in the way that I love them. That's a challenge, isn't it? Paul's love for these Christians is so deep and so pure that he had no hesitation in praying that God would reproduce it in the lives of the members of the church. So he prays that their love will grow. And then thirdly, ultimately, he wants these new Christians to grow and become more and more holy until they stand before God at the day of judgment and that they will not be condemned and that's what he prays there in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's praying that they will keep standing firm all the way to glory. He's not just praying for them now for a few weeks in the short term, but he's praying for the long haul as well. I don't know if you struggle as you use the prayer card or as you just come to your 
daily devotions each day? What, what should I pray for the members of my church? Well, here are three good things to pray for the members of the church. Pray that we will long to see one another, that we'll delight in each other's company and presence. Pray that our love for one another will abound. And pray that God will establish our hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. So we see Paul's love and joy expressing itself not just in word, but in action. Just as we saw this morning, so here. He prays earnestly and passionately and constantly for these believers. Why? Where did Paul get the idea that a good pastor should pray constantly and earnestly for his people? Who did he learn that from? Well, hopefully you don't need me to tell you the answer by now, but I'm going to anyway. He learned it from the one who ever lives to make intercession for his people. He learned it from Jesus Christ, because isn't Jesus praying intensely night and day for all his people all the time. All through his life on earth, the Lord Jesus was a man of prayer. Psalm 109 verse 4 is, well, Psalm 109 is, is one of the messianic psalms. It's a psalm that speaks about the Christ. And in verse 4, it says, I give myself to prayer. The Messiah will be a man who gives himself to prayer. In fact, the original Hebrew there is even more emphatic than that. What it literally says is, I am prayer. The Messiah will be a man who is prayer. And Jesus was an intercessor. He was the intercessor par excellence in his life on earth. When his ministry begins at his baptism, Jesus is praying. And at the end of his ministry, his first and last words on the cross are a prayer. He's praying for others, even as he hangs on the cross. He's interceding for his enemies as he hangs on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. At critical moments of his life, he prays. Mark only tells us about three times that Jesus prays. In the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of his ministry. But they are critical moments. And the point that Mark is making is that the Lord's whole ministry was one that was dominated by prayer. Luke 5, 16 tells us that in the midst of incredible busyness and activity, Jesus would again and again keep withdrawing to lonely places. Why? So that he can get some peace and quiet and get away from all these demanding, truculent people? No, it's so that he can pray to his Father. He tells Peter in Luke 22, verse 31, that he's praying for him. Simon Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. The only reason that Peter's faith didn't fail and that he didn't become an apostate like Judas is because the Lord was praying for him. John chapter 17, a whole chapter recording the Lord's intercession for his people and for the leaders of the church. Think of Jesus praying in Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-four, being in agony. He prayed more earnestly. There he is in Gethsemane praying. The other disciples are exhausted. Jesus is exhausted as well. But where they fall asleep, they don't watch, they don't pray, and they fall later on. Jesus stays awake and he prays. He's praying that he'll be sustained through the arrest and through the trials and through the mockery and through the pain and through the cross. And he's praying that he'll be sustained and that he'll be able to do all of that. Why? For his sake? No. For our sake. It's for us that he's praying so that he'll be able to save us. And what has the Lord Jesus been doing for the last 2,000 years since he ascended to the right hand of God and sat down in glory? Has he been enjoying the, the, the bliss and the happiness of all this praise and adoration of the angels and the redeemed saints in glory? Has he been enjoying uh, looking out on, on the creation that he's made? Is that what he's doing? Romans eight thirty four, Christ Jesus, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's standing, he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's praying for you and for me. And he's been praying for his people for 2,000 years. He's praying continually for every single Christian. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Why? How? How is He able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him? The verse goes on, Since He always lives to make intercession for them. You keep going as a Christian, and you will keep going as a Christian, and you will make it to heaven because the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you night and day, most earnestly, that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His saints. That's what He's praying. That's the prayer that He keeps praying. Just what Paul prayed for these Thessalonians, that every believer will persevere and make it to glory. We, your elders, pray for you. We set aside half an hour plus at the beginning of all of our session meetings to pray for you, the congregation. We'll be praying uh, at, at greater length uh, next weekend when we go away for our conference. We pray for you every day. Uh, we pray for all of you regularly 
and earnestly. We pray for your spiritual strength. We pray for your growth. But we are weak, unfallible men. And we don't pray for you as we should. So isn't it unspeakably comforting? Isn't it wonderful to know that our great pastor, our chief shepherd, the Son of God himself, is praying for every single one of us, night and day, most earnestly, and that he never, ever forgets. He's never too busy. He's never preoccupied. He's never too tired. That is what he is using his unending life to do. What an encouragement it must have been for these Thessalonians to hear that the great apostle Paul had them on his heart and was praying constantly for them by name. It must have spurred them on, mustn't it? To greater efforts to know that he is remembering them. And it, it, it does help, doesn't it? It does buoy us up just to know that someone is praying for you, to get a wee text message or a phone call or a card uh, or, or a squeeze of the hand as you're going out of church and someone says, I'm praying for you. I've remembered about that thing that's happening this week and I just want you to know I'm praying for you. It's great encouragement as we go into difficult situations to know that someone is praying for us, to be able to picture them kneeling there before the Lord upholding us in prayer as we go through that ordeal, whatever it is. Well, how much more encouraging should it be to know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, is praying for us earnestly, night and day. As we leave our communion season, as we go into a new week, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us, every one of us. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to college, He's praying for you. As you get up in the middle of the night to look after a baby or a sick child, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is praying for you. As you face that temptation and you think you can't stand, Jesus Christ is praying for you. As you cope with grief, as you cope with chronic pain, as you suffer mockery and scorn, Jesus is praying for you in that. He knows all about it perfectly. And he's seated at the right hand of God and he's interceding for you as you go through that. As you deal with conflict or confrontation, he's praying for you. Whatever you face this week, whatever it is, the Son of God is praying for you. And he's praying for you because he loves you with a deep, fierce love. He's praying for you because you're his joy and you're his crown, you're his glory. He's praying for you because you're on his heart and he delights in you. He's praying for you because he has given everything for you. He has made the greatest sacrifice imaginable. He's done the harder thing. So of course you can be confident that he will keep on praying for you now to see you finish what he has begun in you. So Paul 
writes these words to the Thessalonians to assure them that he loves them. How can you think that I don't love you? How could we think that the Lord Jesus doesn't love us? And yet, that's the temptation, isn't it? That's the, that's the poisonous suggestion that the devil whispers in our ears. Never, never, never think that he doesn't love you. He could not love you more than he does. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have reflected in the Apostle Paul in his love for those Thessalonian Christians in all that he was prepared to sacrifice for their spiritual good and in the prayers that he prayed for them in his delight and joy in them. And we thank you, Father, that in all of these things, to an infinite degree, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love for us, for the price that he was willing to pay in coming into this world for our sakes to live and to die. We thank you, Lord God, for his delight in the people that he has saved. We thank you that he doesn't merely tolerate us, but that he delights in us and rejoices over us. We thank you, Lord God, that he is praying for us night and day most earnestly, praying that we will be established uh, in holiness, uh, blameless in heart before our God and Father, that we will persevere right to the end. And so, Lord, we echo his prayer for us, and we pray that you would establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Lord God, we pray that we will be encouraged and that we will be spurred on to live blameless, holy lives, to stand firm in our faith as we reflect on this glorious love that the Lord Jesus has for us, the people that he has saved. Lord, we pray for those who are still strangers to this salvation, who have not yet experienced the love of Jesus Christ for themselves. We pray that as they hear about it, uh, as they see it imperfectly reflected in our lives and in our words, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would have mercy upon them, and that you would save them. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.